scientists have been, been studying one word for decades. That word? Huh? It's true. It's true. And they recently published an article under this title. Is huh a universal word? Now, there are about 7,000 languages in the world. And uh, linguists have discovered that um, there's one thing that every language contains. Uh, one word that has just one syllable, which is, huh? It expresses non-understanding. And it has to be learned. They have discovered that kids don't get it until they're at least five. It's not some early unintelligible grunt, uh, some spontaneous vocalization. It's not either of those. And divergent languages all come back to this one common word, huh? Well, do we really need that research? I mean, isn't it clear that humans everywhere are plagued by ignorance? So that we often say, huh? We don't know it all as much as we would like other people to think. Uh, we don't know it all. Uh, nobody does anywhere. And so we often use, huh? Uh, we often use it, and others often use it. But there's good news. Uh, the Bible says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and doesn't hold back, and it will be given to him. We can say, huh, lots of times, but our need is to understand, to see, to consider things from God's perspective. Uh, that is to say, our need is to think God's thoughts after him more and more faithfully. So we're going to look at a psalm that gives us a wonderful truth. God knows you. God knows you. And it's there in Psalm 139, the one Lynn just read for us. If you have a Bible or a mobile device, please turn to it, Psalm 139. We're going to look at it in its entirety. Now, our aim is to move from the text to the theology that is in the text, that is, how God relates to his world, and then to application. That's what we're going to try to do. And we're going to simply use the outline that the writer gives us in this poem. We'll look at God's discernment, God's perception, his purpose, and then finally a prayer. And after we've done all that, over those 24 verses, then we'll hone in on one application. So what is it about God's discernment? Well, it's in the first six verses there, if you look at them. 
It's a very personal psalm, one-on-one between you and God. Verse 1, God has searched you. That is to say, he's closely examined you. He's made a careful study of you. He knows you in detail. He knows your situation completely. That's what's in view when we read, O Lord, you searched me. And then verse 2, God knows all about your movement, the most intimate thoughts, uh, words and private areas of your life. Uh, When I sit down and when I rise up, it's a figure of speech denoting thoroughness. God even knows your thoughts from afar. He knows all your ways, verse 3. And the force of that expression is this. He knows the things you do habitually. What do you go back to over and over and over again? God knows it. In verse 4, he knows you extensively before the events of your life even happen. And then one more aspect of God's discernment of you, right there in verse 5. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful, I can't attain unto it. What's this idea of being hemmed in? The Lord sets the limits of our experience. Think about that. He decides where we're going to be, where we're going to be, and no farther. He hems us in behind and before, and then David finally comes to this burst of praise. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high I can't attain unto it. In other words, he's saying, I accept your scrutiny of me, and I accept the fact that you have set boundaries around my life, and I'm thrilled over the prospect. Now, just two takeaways here. The Lord knows your words before you utter them. Remember back in 1 Samuel, here's Hannah. She goes to the temple to pray. She's distressed. She doesn't have any kids. She feels as if she's being maligned by Elkanah, the other uh, wife. And so uh, she prays there in the temple, but not out loud. She mouths the words, but there's uh, there's no sound that comes out of her mouth. Well, so it is with you. You can pray silently to the Lord about the deepest needs that you have. And he already knows what's going on because he knows you so thoroughly. And as a matter of fact, he wants you to bring to him your longings, your hopes, your anger, your complaints, your disappointments. He wants you to lay them all out before him and he says it clearly to us In Psalm 62, verse 8, pour out your heart to the Lord. 
Now, here's another takeaway. Like David, you live in a troubled world. And yet you can still experience peace because the Lord knows your situation completely. There's security in his knowledge of you and his care for you. Ever been in a traffic jam? I was, down in Wilmington one time, rush hour, and it began me on a process of thinking about what God knows. Like, how much longer am I going to be in this mess? But it was more than that. Then I began to ponder, hmm, the Lord knows how many cars are in front of me from here to the light at Route 202. And then I thought, and he also knows the number of cylinders that are in the engines between here and there. And he knows at any given second where a particular piston is in its movement up and down. And it was too much for me. I thought, I can't get my head around this. How is he able to keep all those facts and figures? And it's the same with you and your own personal life, isn't it? I mean, doesn't the Lord know your pulse rate at the moment? Your blood pressure? Your vitamin D level? Uh, doesn't he know all these things? Well, he does. Every last detail. It is amazing, this truth. Now, in addition, <clears throat> in addition to God discerning us, we're also told that about his perception, and that's in verses 7 through 12. So look at those, please. Yes, we know he's all-knowing. But now we're told God is everywhere present. Verse 7. Two rhetorical questions. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Uh, and when the writer says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? A presence could also be translated face. And those two questions are just about the same. Lord, where can I go from your presence or from your spirit is parallel to where can I go to get away from your face? And the answer that Jonah learned long ago is nowhere. But let's consider some possibilities. How about verse 8? Suppose I were to go up into heaven, that is, where people think about God residing. Or down into Sheol, the realm of the dead. In either of those places, can I get it? No, I can't get away from him there. Well, how about verse, verse 9 then? Suppose I uh, go toward the sunrise to the east. Or I go toward the sea. Israelites thought about the sea as toward the west. Can I get away from the Lord if I go in either? No, no, you can't get away from him there. The Lord is present in the farthest extremes of the universe. No place is off limits to his presence. And so verse 10. Even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The length of God's 
personal touch on your life is incredible, as is his protection. Well, let's try another possibility, verses 11 and 12. How about the extremes of light and darkness, and we can take those in two senses, physical light and physical darkness, and moral light and moral darkness. And again, the answer, neither do light and darkness hide us from God. And so let's try a couple more takeaways just this far. It's true that we don't derive a robust doctrine of the Trinity from this psalm. But we are told here about God, and we're told here about the Spirit of God. There is some indication of plurality within the Godhead. But beyond that, God's universal presence means that a person such as you cannot evade him no matter how hard you try, either in your thoughts or in your behavior. And so let me ask, may I ask you a personal question? You know what they say, before you ask a personal question, you ought to ask for permission to ask a personal question. So let me ask, may I? What strategies are you currently using to get away from the Lord? How do you try to evade his scrutiny of your life? And follow up. How's it been working for you? Consider the reality of God's omnipresence as you think about your secret sins. Christian slaves reminded themselves in some of their songs about God's universal presence. One of them starts like this. He's got the whole world in his hands. Um, and then the song goes on like this. He's got the wind and the waves in his hands. He's got the tiny little baby in his hands. He's got you and me brother in his hands. He's got you and me sister in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. The Lord is discerning, knowing all the details about your life. He's also perceptive. He's everywhere present. You're always in his care. He's transcendent on the one hand, and, yes, and yet he's imminent on the other. And those truths, at least if you're like me, are simultaneously sobering and frightening and comforting. The Lord's discerning, the Lord's perceptive, God is transcendent, he's imminent. Well, what else is here? Uh, please look at the next section. It's verses 13 through 18. God is purposeful. Verse 15, 
<clears throat> my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That's a metaphor for being formed in my mother's womb. I wasn't hidden for you back then from the very beginning. And now look at verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book. They were written of me, every one of them, the days that you formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That is a fascinating verse for at least two reasons. First of all, David uses the language of art here. Um, a potter, before engaging in the work of pover potter, not poverty, pottery, has to decide what he's going to make. What is this thing going to be? And then he takes a lump of clay and he forms it into a vessel of his choosing. Well, David uses this word for crafting pottery when he talks about the details of the days of your life. In keeping with God's design, the Lord fashioned every one of your days. And he did that so that his purposes could be brought to expression in your life. Uh, his purpose for you in this moment in history, choosing and keeping you for his eternal purpose. Now, there's a second reason that this verse is very interesting, and that is it makes reference to God's writing. He writes the days. There are a number of places where the Bible tells us that God has a library. Um, the Days of Your Life is one of the books. There's another one. Uh, he has a book of life, the Lamb's Book of Life. He's got another one, the Register of the Peoples, where he's keeping track of the salvation of the lost from all around the world. But this one has to do with him writing about your days. God conceived of David, his days of life, he fashioned him for his purposes, and he brought him on the scene at just the right moment and in keeping with, David, with God's eternal design for this creature made in his image. And David's response, he can't get over it. It's one of praise, verses 17 and 18. He says, how precious also are your thoughts for me, O Lord. O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would be more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. It's stunning. It's overwhelming. The thoughts that God is at work and this re, in this relationship with David. Uh, and, and as David thinks about what God has done for him, it moves him toward the Lord. So what are a couple implications that flow out of this idea? Well, first of all, 
The writer acknowledges here his personhood in his mother's womb. He doesn't see himself as some kind of fetal tissue. And instead, he sees himself in the womb as bearing the image of God. And though hidden from us, the life of the unborn is to be protected and nourished as far as the Bible's concerned. Next, you are here in this moment. What time is it? 11.28 on June 5th. You're here in this moment, uh, not by chance, but by divine appointment. God marked out this day for you to be in this place even before you, quote-unquote, decided you were going to show up at covenant. Imagine, Lord had this in mind for you. Stunning, jaw-dropping. And then another one, all of your talents and abilities and your struggles and your confusion, they reflect some of what God is doing in your life to make you the kind of person that he wants you to be. Certainly you're not a nobody. God's assessment of you is this. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so it's important then, I would say, as an outworking of what we've seen so far, for you to study your life. Study my life, really? You want me to be introspective? Yeah, study your life. Consider the story that God is writing in your life so that you can keep better in step with him as he's taking you to be a blessing to a world in dire need. Discerning, perceptive, purposeful. Where does this lead us? Well, please look at the last section. It's verses 19 to 24. It leads us to prayer. Troubled by the unscrupulous, the writer now implores, verse 19, God, slay the wicked. Men of bloodshed, depart from me. Verse 20, they speak evil against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Yes, it is the case. Using God's name as an expletive is nothing less than rebellion against him. Verse 21. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. In order to have God as your friend, you need to be willing to have the right enemies. Scheming, destructive, defiant. The wicked lack respect for life, for justice, for righteousness. And 
shootings around the country this last week and the violence in Ukraine and the ethnic cleansing that's going on among the Uyghurs in China. All of these speak to us as real-life examples of the struggle in our world between righteousness and wickedness. We not only pray against evil, but we pray in the other direction as well. We are taught to pray for ourselves. So look at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Is not this the movement that the Lord wants to see in you and in all of his people? Um, and is not this exactly the kind of thing that Jesus taught, teaches us to pray May your kingdom come, may your will be done. And is not this exactly what we find in the person and work of our Savior? He delights to do the Father's will. He prays that the Father's will be done. He moves without reserve toward the Lord even as he faces his time of trial. And best of all, he gives himself to empower those who trust in him to live a life that's commensurate with this psalm. The one who knows you the best loves you the most, in other words. And Christ is in you today, the hope of glory. Did you ever hear of William Borden? 1904, <clears throat> graduated from high school uh, in Chicago and was the obvious heir to millions. As a graduation present, his parents sent him on a tour around the world, Asia, Europe, South America. And um, as he was making the tour, he was very troubled by the people needs to which he was exposed. With a growing burden for human suffering, he wrote back home and he said he desired to be a missionary. And one of his friends replied this way, Bill is throwing himself away as a missionary. He responded with two words, no reserves. Having graduated from high school, he then went on to Yale University to do his college, uh, his college studies. And uh, while he was there, had still this gnawing desire to do something. And during those years, uh, he made another entry in his journal saying no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Bill's call to cross-cultural service focused on a Muslim people group in China. And so after he graduated from Yale, he went on then to Princeton Seminary, and after graduating from Princeton Seminary, he headed to the Far East, but stopped in Egypt so that he could learn Arabic. 
And while he was there, he contracted spinal meningitis, and with 20, within 25 days, he was dead. Prior to his death, though, he had written two more words in his Bible, no regrets. So what's the application that comes out of all this for us? That's the question. Well, the next time you're inclined to say, huh? Or hear somebody say, huh? Uh, how about this? Why not take hearing that word as the Lord tapping you on the shoulder uh, and respond to that, huh, this way? Lord, I choose to move toward you in this moment. Search me and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. No reserve, no regrets, no retreats. That's what I'm going to do when I hear my next, huh. Would you join me? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We ask you to bless it to us and help us so that we seek you. Thank you for this wonderful psalm and its most encouraging truths that you know us inside out. We pray these things in Jesus' name.